Good morning. I'll be reading Amos 4, 12 through 13. Therefore, I will bring upon you all the disasters I have announced. Prepare to meet your God in judgment, you people of Israel. For the Lord is the one who shaped the mountains, stirs up the winds, and reveals his thoughts to mankind. He turns the light of dawn into darkness and, the tre and treads on the heights of the earth. The Lord God of heaven's armies is his, is his name. There we go. Got it. Got it. If you have your Bible and you want to turn to Amos 4, I suggest you have some asbestos gloves on this morning. For we have from time to time mentioned how uh, sharp are Amos's words. And um, he, he just doesn't seem to be able to let off the gas. So... Um, I, I say that not as um, an apology, <laughs> but as anticipation. That uh, what we find here, even in, the, even in just the two verses that Chris read, we, we find some pretty sharp words, which uh, some summarize this passage when they get ready to address it with simply the words, prepare to meet your God. Um, I've mentioned a time or two in our series, the, uh, the Lion Roar, that uh, um, Amos seems really to sound a lot like the Apostle Paul. And, and that maybe um, if we had read Amos, some wouldn't be so uh, distraught when they read Paul. And uh, I, I, I was reminded um, that Paul concludes Romans 10 by quoting Isaiah, and Isaiah would have been a contemporary of Amos, and here's what he says as he closes out um, Romans 10. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Would you pray with me? Lord God of hosts or God of armies, as Chris's translation puts it, give us ears to hear, birth faith in us by your Spirit, so that our gathering, even this morning, we may hear from you, not ritual, but repentance. Even more, give us ears to hear and birth faith in us by your Spirit so that our living is judged by those without faith as faithful witnesses to the living Christ. And don't let us forget daily. So faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the Word of Christ. So God of hosts, we ask not as a formula, but as you forming us, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, and all God's people say. Don't wish your life away. I mean, it's not long. In fact, it will happen tomorrow. Many of you will be at work. It will be a typical Monday. 
and the thought will pass through your mind, I wish it were Friday. Don't wish your life away. Many an adolescent, maybe when you were, many an adolescent have, have met their limitations with, I can't wait until I graduate. Or, I can't wait till I move out on my own. Don't wish your life away. It doesn't take long for some of us where we reach the age that we say, I wished I had fill in the blank. My, my mentor, Dr. Rick Davis, drove home the point to me that how we talk about our days and longing for a day yet to come is indeed wishing our lives away. I, I recall working on my, or starting to work on my master's degree at Criswell College. It was the, 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 the January of 1986. And, and I, had, I had started late. We, we had Kimberly in April, and we didn't move to Texas until uh, the fall, somewhere around September, I believe it was. And I didn't start, so I, was, I felt like I was six months behind my peers. So I would occasionally have to be looking at the schedule, trying to map it out, see how could I make up that semester? Could I, could I take more hours? What, what could I do to, to get myself back on track with those who were my age, who finished college when I did and get, went right into their degree programs to work on their master's or their master of divinity? I had uh, gone to Criswell for a couple of reasons. One of them was Dr. Roy Metz who taught Greek. The other was I, I hoped I could take a class with Dr. Pretlove. My friend Mac, who was my best friend graduating high school, uh, we, he, went, he had already been to Criswell. He had already started, and, and he told me about Dr. Pretlove. And I thought, man, I, I can't wait. Dr. Pretlove uh, was a Brit, and he had a great accent, and I don't know what it is. I, I, don't, I honestly don't know. But it, it is a soothing to the ear to hear a, a British preacher or professor just wax on you want to know how could I have a spot of my own tea when you listen to them so I went and saw Dr. Pretlove and I thought well he's probably got some wise sage advice and and I went and I, I sat down across from his desk and I, I'm, I'm talking to him about my plans I tell him I'm, I'm married I've, I've got a small Kimberly at home, and I'm working a couple of jobs, and I'm going to school, and, and I really, really want to finish my education so that I can go get a real job, only to find out later that most people don't think pastoring is a real job. <laughs> Dr. Pretlove looked across his desk at me, and he said, Todd, some people go to church just so they can go home again. I'm like, Dr. Prelev, we're not talking church attendance. I, I didn't ask you, I didn't, I didn't ask you, like, what's the motivating factor for people to go to? I'm, I'm, I'm telling you that I really want to know how to fast track my education, make up for a semester, and finish when all of my peers finish. Some people go to church just so they can go home again. 
I, that came to mind reading Amos, believe it or not, because I thought for a minute I would love to go back and be that 22-year-old Todd who sits across the table, and if, he, if Dr. Pretlove responded to me with that same statement, I could say, are you trying out one of your lines from a sermon on Amos on me? Because after all, Amos does seem to be saying that Israel has been going to church just so they can go home again. Uh, listen to what he says, that is what Amos says. Come to Bethel, which if I could put it in our modern parlance, here's what we would be saying. Come to church. Come to Bethel and transgress. To Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Now there's a thought, right? Bring a thank offering of leavened bread and proclaim free will offerings. Publish them. For so you love to do, O people of Israel, says the Lord. Now, for those of you who traffic in irony and sarcasm, where that is your love language like it often is my own, Amos is your prophet. Amos is the guy you need to be listening to. If you want to hear someone who's giving the word of the Lord in ironic terms or in sarcastic descriptions, Amos is your guy. If you're put off by that, you probably should find it. Well, there aren't any other prophets that don't do that. That is precisely what Amos does. And since we're on that subject, if you're keeping track of how this works, and sometimes we all need to be reminded... Amos is not giving his words. Amos is giving the words of the Lord. In fact, when he will address the people, especially in Amos, from time to time, we get, so says the Lord, or this is what the Lord says. So Amos is not giving his words. He's conveying God's words to the people. In other words, God is trafficking in irony and sarcasm. So before you and I think that someone is playing with God's words, understand something, God knows us human beings too well. And sometimes we don't get it in plain English. Sometimes we need the irony of it all. Sometimes we need the sarcasm of it all. And here Amos is declaring the Lord's word to the people of God in irony and in sarcasm. God is not mocking Israel for going to church, to Bethel. What we should hear being said is that God is insisting that their actual habits are ironic. In other words, they've been going to church, they've been going to Bethel, they've been practicing the rituals, and it has not made one difference in their living. Not one iota of difference. And so he's, he's, he's ironically saying, okay, let's go to church. And when you go to church and you do all the right things, because frankly, they are doing the things that the ritual tells them to do. All the description of the, um, their tithes and their sacrifices and their unleavened bread, those are all the things that are important to the instructions they have received about worship. They are doing those things. But, but, in doing them, because it hasn't altered their life, God says, 
Why don't you go to church and sin? Why don't you go to church and magnify your sin? In other words, you're going where you ought to be going, but you're not paying attention to what you're doing. And as a result, you are practicing ritual rather than repentance. It's just a quick footnote. Listen, um, I think it was uh, Eugene Peterson who wrote, who, who did the message translation of the Bible, which is kind of a paraphrase. He is the one, I think, I think it is, or, or it could be Wendell Berry, but it's one of the two came up with the phrase that we should practice resurrection. I think we should practice repentance. That is, if repentance means an ongoing changing of my mind, it means I need to continue working on my mind being changed. Paul says that in Romans 12. That's why Paul and Amos seem to be such good companions. Practice repentance doesn't mean that you need to practice your sobbing. It doesn't mean that you need to practice your groveling. It means we practice changing our minds and thinking about the world on God's terms. Seeing the world God's way. Seeing our neighbors the way God does. And that was what was problematic for Amos when he gave the words to the people They knew the requirements that God had given them, and they failed to see them as transforming practices. They continued their worship on their own terms and not as the people God called them to be. Now, Bethel. Bethel is in the northern kingdom. It was second only to Jerusalem in importance. And for the northern northern kingdom, Bethel was what Jerusalem was to the southern kingdom. Bethel, important place. Abram, in chapter 12 of Genesis, he, it, he builds his second altar at Bethel. I like to call Abram uh, the uh, altar builder. Seemed like uh, up to a point, up to, actually up to the point where he uh, takes Isaac up on the mountain, up to that point, everywhere he stopped, everywhere he engaged the Lord, the Lord spoke to him, he built an altar. Second place in Genesis 12, where Abram built an altar, it was named Bethel. When Jacob is traveling on his way to find a wife, he stops and has a sleepover, and in a dream, God confirms that his, uh, his heritage comes through Abram, and Jacob himself will carry on the covenant promise God had made to have a people. Bethel is the place where when the Ark of the Covenant needed a spot to stay, During the period of the Judges, the Ark of the Covenant, remember, that had um, Aaron's budding rod, a jar of manna, and the two uh, tables of the Ten Commandments carried around by the people of God on poles. Every time it needed a place to sit for a while during the period of the Judges, it was in Bethel. Bethel meant the house of God. Samuel carried out his civil court duties. That was his, one of his jobs. One of his jobs was to settle scores between people. You and I have something uh, that we need to settle. We need someone to help us because we're having trouble kind of reconciling. Samuel, one of his roles was to get the two parties together and say, okay, we're going to hammer this out. We're going to work this out. He did that in Bethel at the house of God. David, David, when he was being chased around by Saul, 
He thought well of Bethel because of how the people had treated him. So he sent gifts back to Bethel. Bethel was second only to Jerusalem. And it was primary for the northern kingdom in Israel. But two kings named Jeroboam, living a bit of distance apart, they both turned Bethel into a place of idolatry. They mixed their religious practices, their religious rituals with worshiping other deities, which God says are not. In other words, if you read the Ten Commandments uh, in Exodus 20, you will have no other gods before my faces. He's literally saying there are no other gods and no other place for other gods. Yet, the people of God, who had carried the name of God, who had carried the activity of God in their history, they had mingled their worship of Yahweh with Baal or Marduk or any of the other available tribal gods in the region. So God's sarcasm was not that they failed to worship, but that when they did, two things were clear. One, their worship was ritual and not repentance. And second, and importantly, the thing that gets the attention of the prophet, their way of living was worse than the nations surrounding them. They believed that their wealth and privilege were signs from God that they were on the right track. So they just continued. They just continued to live in their luxury, ignoring that their way of life was at the cost of the poor and the needy. How we hear this, how we hear what Amos is doing is incredibly important. And, And this is the part where I have to tell you after the last decade is a bit is a bit risky to say, but um, it, it has to be said. Amos, ready? Amos is calling out the people of God for their politics. They followed the law and the statutes in ways that privileged them and disadvantaged others. The politics of the people of God did not consider others first. Now you can't read the New Testament and you can't read the Apostle Paul without hearing him repeatedly say, consider others more important than yourself. You can't hear him but saying, listen, with all the energy you have, live at peace with one another. You can't read the Apostle Paul without hearing the one another's. Those are the governing politics of the people of God. And what we've done, sadly what we've done, is we've mingled our ritual ways with a different politic. Maybe you should hear Amos, how he puts it, okay? Amos 3. Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and the strongholds in Egypt and say, Assemble yourselves on Mount Samaria and see what great tumults are within it and what oppression are in its midst. And here's the damning words. They do not know how to do what is right. They do not know how to do right, says the Lord, those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. Now, I don't know how to paint the picture except to say it this way. Samaria was the mountain. You remember where um, um, 
Samaria was the mountain, and mountain is often a reference in the Old Testament to the place of stronghold. It's, mountains were the places where people went to say they got closer to God. If you've, been to, if you've been to a Baptist youth camp, that's what they tell you. You're never closer to God than when you're on mountains in Arbuckles. Like, wait a minute. And here's what happens. So he says, assemble Ashdod in Egypt. Now, these are not two God's people nations. Okay? In other words, they are people who don't have God's law and they don't have God's statutes. And yet it is God who's calling the inhabitants of Ashdod and Egypt to gather together to sit and look over Mount Samaria and be the judge of God's people. Do you get the magnitude of that? The, the, the weightiness of, of God calling people who don't have God's law and don't have his statutes and saying, you're going to be the judge and here's what I want you to see. I want you to see the sorts of things that is happening among the people who I call mine. Now that's, listen, we don't like each other in here judging us. We hate that. Imagine if we had invited folks who don't go to church. We put out a plea and said, hey, anyone in total who doesn't go to church, doesn't know the Lord, doesn't really care about the Scriptures, we'd like you to come and be judge over us. You ready for that one? I mean, that is the same thing that's happening here. God is calling the very people who have practiced oppression over Israel to give account and witness the oppression Israel is perpetuating on other people, mostly her own. You see why you need your asbestos this morning. Handle with care. It's pretty hot when Amos gets to rolling. The magnitude of this cannot be overstated. God is calling on those who aren't looking for God and aren't asking for God to be the judge over God's people. I don't know how to be more blunt. Except to say, if you go back and we reread Amos 1 and 2, we find out that there are six nations who are described as going to receive the fire from the Lord. Remember the three for three transgressions and for four, I'm going to do this thing and fire's going to come. You, you remember that part? Well, go back and read it this afternoon. Chapters 1 and 2. These nations surrounding Israel are the ones who would send their little um, raiding parties into Israel. And they would take some captive, they would enslave some, they would take money, they, they were atrocious in their actions. And what God is saying is, Ain't got nothing on my people. That's nothing compared to what's going on in Israel. I had to tell you, that's pretty uh, disheartening. Others were not more important. In other words, Amos says, you were supposed to be different. And Amos is saying, well, you are actually. You're worse. You're different from those surrounding nations only in degree. In other words, you're doing the very same things, except you're doing it better. All the things that the six nations were accused of doing, God is essentially saying, man, Israel's better at your, your, your wrongs. They don't 
do right was the critique. And those nations would become Israel's judges. When you get to chapter 4, it starts this way. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on Mount Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to their husbands, bring something to drink. Now, you can read any number of commentaries, and they try to figure out how should we hear the epithet cows of Bashan. If you happen to hear it one way, you could be thinking that Amos is calling all the women big fat cows. Man, I would not suggest trying that one. Mainly because Bashan was an area that was very um, fruitful. It was was, uh, plentiful. And they had everything they needed. And then enjoying all that they had, they just needed more. There are others who, who say that, well, it's really not an epithet only about women. It's actually about all those who are living there. All of those are enjoying the luxuries, the fruitfulness of life, the fruitfulness of the area. All of them are guilty. In other words, they have taken advantage of the poor and the needy, and they've benefited from it, and they're not satisfied. They need more. Bring me another drink, they say. However you want to settle on what that epithet means, it clearly means that Israel was so adept at oppressing oppressing the poor, crushing the needy, and that they were never satisfied in doing so. Now listen, I have thought of a number of ways to do this from the most offensive to the least in looking for an illustration. So rather than get in the way of possibly hearing the word of the Lord, I'm just going to not go that route. Instead, I want you to know that in 2007, sociologists began to discover that there is a group of people who, when polled, decided that they were going to identify themselves as unaffiliated religiously. And you may have heard of this group all the way back in 2007, which some say actually is the product of sociological work all the way back in the 70s, but that's for someone else to argue about. But they, we, we hear them described as the nuns. So that started in 2007. Pew Research, uh, a research uh, entity who has been tracking this since then, has said um, it started with about 15% of the polled population in 2007 uh, identified as unaffiliated. Just last week, they came out with an updated and said it's 28%. It's the largest single group of people uh, identifying in that way. Larger, I read one place, larger than those who identify as Protestant Christians. That's a pretty big percentage, if you're paying attention. The, the key issue is trying to define exactly why are they, what does it mean. Here is their 2012 lead-in. The number of Americans who do not identify with any religion continues to grow at a rapid pace, 
one-fifth of the U.S. public and a third of adults under 30 are religiously unaffiliated today. And here they are. With few exceptions, though, the unaffiliated say they are not looking for a religion that would be right for them. In other words, they're not, they're not shopping. And overwhelmingly, they think that religious organizations are too concerned with money and power, too focused on rules, and too involved in politics. In the survey that came out last week, they asked those group and said, okay, so is religion good or bad? 41% said it's bad all the time. 43 said, well, about 50-50. It's bad half the time, it's half the time good. The percentage of that group that says it's, it's good is so small that it's embarrassing. So what that says is, is 84% of those polled, of that 28% of all people, believe that religion a good bit of the time does more harm than good. Rather than the practice of repentance, the performance of ritual has left the world without a word from Christ. Has left the world without a word from Christ. Listen. This is politics. This is what it means when we talk about living with others. And if the others we live with are passing judgment on the practice of our religion and telling us that most of the time it does more harm than good, we should not get defensive. We should listen. Israel's problem was they didn't listen. Israel's problem was when the Lord said something to them, they didn't pay attention. The reason they eventually suffered exactly what the prophet said was because they did not hear what was being said. Israel Israel has a history. And they had in their law and in their statutes how they were to treat others different from them. They were to treat those who came to live in their land as though they were brothers and sisters, as though they were family. That's what Israel, the people of God, were supposed to do. I want to suggest that we say that's what we want to do, but rather than mix our worship with worshiping Marduk or Baal. We have mixed our worship of God with the God of Mammon. And we don't practice repentance except when we don't have all the money we want. Asking God to help us meet the needs of others should be our primary question. Our first question It's time to listen. If you think this is easy, this is terribly painful because it calls into question all of my own decisions, all of my own actions. Sermons are first preached to us before you get to hear them. I'm assuming that was the case for Amos. So if we're going to say that God still speaks through His Word, still speaks through Amos... We have to face the reality that we've opted for a different 
politic a different way to live with people. What people do to one another is politics. I don't care what your atomized choice of news source is. When it comes to what God says, politics is how people live with each other. Not how we can decide who we want to live with and when we want to live with them and how we want to live with them. The politics that God issues through the prophets is other people matter. You don't have a choice. Is that communicating? That is what Amos is saying What we do is we look, I said I wasn't, I'm, I'm really doing this delicately. So polls are telling us that there are two issues that are important to us this coming election. And I'm telling you from the straight, I think we got problems on both directions. So if you think I'm lobbying for one over the other, well, we just need to probably have a good conversation. But here's what happens. Here's what's startling to me in this building, in this place, where we're saying we're gathering as God's people is this. We're saying that the two most important issues facing us are immigration and the economy. Politics, that is, politics for the people of God, is, is to say, God, how can I help people? And what we do is we choose... We're concerned about our particular way of life over helping others. That's what people are hearing. That's what people are hearing. That we're choosing our way of life over others. Now, there is a line in the hymn in Philippians 2 that said God, uh, that Jesus didn't regard his equality with God, his way of life as more important, but humbled himself and took the form of a human being and suffered death, even death on the cross, for us. It is hard to claim to be the people of God when we don't listen to the Jesus of God. So what they tend to hear, what people tend to hear, is they are the problem. They are the problem. And Israel was all the while telling God, they are the problem. And all the while God's saying, (laughs) they got nothing on you. They got nothing on you. So maybe when we start thinking that our two chief issues are immigration and the economy, we might should be paying attention to what's going on in our world a little bit different. So if you read from, from that opening bit about the cows of Bashan, and I'm trying to cover this. I, I can be done in five minutes if you'll stay with me. When, when you get from the cows of Bashan to you get to what Chris read, what you get are five times God tells Israel, here's what I've been doing and you've not been paying attention. Okay? And everything that Amos describes refer to things that are going on in the world. That is, things that are observable, that they bear witness to, that they know happen, that they can see, that affects them. And rather than ask the question, what does this mean? What is God saying to me? They turn it up and say, listen, we've got to protect ourselves even more. Five times, five times it's described, here's 
what the people are seeing happen. In other words, here's what you've experienced, Israel. Five times this happens, and here's the answer. Here's the response five times. You did not return to me. So we used to have a a moment back when I was a kid when things started happening in our world, our first question was, what's God saying in the midst of these events? Today, what we say is, how can I make sure to protect what I have in the midst of these events? Do you see the difference? The difference is, we're not paying attention. It could be, ready? It could be that we are facing issues with immigration and the economy because God's trying to get our attention. And our result, our response, our first response is inflation. Our first response. We forget that there are people in the world who live on $2 a week. You did not return to me. These are the most important issues. And yet we hear the news that we don't want to hear, that more people are working, inflation is declining, And our biggest concern is what it costs us, not who we can help. Not who the other is and who's in need. We don't ask, how's God at work in these events and what is God saying to me? You, yet, you did not return to me. If Amos 4 says anything, it's this. God is always working in the world. Always And we ought to be trying to discern what it is God is saying in the world. And if we are dependent on our economy for our protection, we have pledged our allegiance to other than Yahweh. And that's what Israel was hearing. I know you, like me, get through with Amos like this, and we go, I need some good news. Todd, did you not pay attention? The sun is shining this morning. We've had enough clouds, doom and gloom, for the last several days. Do you know that we've been in an icebox a good bit of this year? It's time. Where is the good news? Well, the good news is in the last words of Paul in Romans 10. All day long, God, through Isaiah, says, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. That's good news, folks. All day long, I've held out my hands. Despite your concerns and interests, despite missing the fact that other people really do matter, I'm holding out my hands to you. Paul is not repeating Isaiah's words as though they're words of judgment. Paul is saying, listen to the grace at work. That in the midst of our being shackled by our own concern, consumed by what's it going to look like tomorrow, without a thought for what's happening to other people, we're hearing the good news. Yet God still holds his hands out to us. Now, if you can't hear that as grace and good news, we'll, we'll rewind this and start over. That is good news. It is good news that in the midst of... And see, this is what... Amos 4 is really about. God has said, here's what I've been trying to do for you, and you're not paying attention. So what does God do? Chris read it. Finish it up. I know you're ready. Here's what he says. 
for lo, the one who forms the mountains, creates the wind, reveals his thoughts to mortals, makes the morning darkness, and treads the heights of the earth. The Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. God is reintroducing himself to a people who should know him. That he would do that is grace. That he would look at you and me and God's church and people around the world who have decided others don't matter. It just is me. God is reintroducing himself to say, I've been the one doing all this for you. And I'm still holding my hands out to you. I'm still expressing my love and care for you. I still want you to return to me. Now, I will tell you, you know yourself too well and I know me too well. I would not do that. If I had tried five times, sorry. You? If you had tried five times, well, some of us would never get to two times. This is grace. We need to hear what's going on and what went on in Amos' day as though God's saying it to us because he is. And this is the word of Christ for us today. He is yet holding his hands out to us. So rather than ritual, I went to church this morning so I could go home again. We practice repentance. Where, spirit, is my mind and in what ways does it need changing? That is our prayer. Would you pray with me?